Well, we've been working our way through a New Testament book of the Bible, traditionally called the Acts of the Apostles, and it's a history of the earliest Christian churches and their leaders. And today we're going to look at a story in Acts chapter 5, but to be able to understand that story more fully, we need to back up with a little bit of background that comes at the end of chapter 4. So I'm going to read first that background, then the story that we'll talk about today, um, beginning with Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Um, if you'd like to follow along in a pew Bible, it's on page 1662, 1662. Um, and again, I'll begin reading in Acts chapter 4, 32. Here's what Luke writes. He says, All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that, that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they, had, as, everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in all of them that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. And now the story that we'll talk mostly about today. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept, the, kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit and kept for yourself some of the money that you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died, and a great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some of the young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. And at that moment, she fell down and, at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. This is the word of the Lord. Many years ago, I read the story of a pastor named Ed. Um, there was a lot going on in Ed's life at the time of the story that he told, and he was discouraged. He said um, his grandfather had just died. He was suffering from a chronic health issue that would not clear up for a year or two. Uh, one of the church's most important and godly leaders, someone who had supported this pastor, was dying of brain cancer, and he said to top it all off, attendance and giving had been dropping. But far worse than that was a pattern of gossip and misbehavior from a handful of church members that had crippled the church, as he would later learn, for decades, long before Ed had been there. Now, he tried to confront the issue head-on. He'd been praying it would stop, but it didn't. The guilty parties would never admit guilt or express even the slightest remorse over the hurt that they continually caused. So he was tired and discouraged. His job had come to feel like an exercise in futility. So one day he sat down in the middle of the week and began to prepare his Sunday sermon. 
He was teaching through the book of James, and the the week he came to, that week, he was going to be teaching from James chapter 3. Maybe some of you have read the chapter because it talks about the damage that our words can do to one another. Without much hope, other than that he just had to prepare a sermon, he, he prayed that as he started to prepare that perhaps he said, Lord, you could use what I'm going to say this Sunday to stop the gossip around here. But he had a busy week. He confessed he didn't put a lot of time into the preparation of the sermon. He focused his effort on communicating that words have the power to destroy. And he added a few stories about people who had said things that had encouraged him and some who had said things that had crushed him. And when he finished writing the sermon, he didn't really feel that he had prepared anything particularly special. So Sunday morning, he gave what he thought was a mediocre, lackluster sermon. Not his worst, but certainly not his best. Monday morning, it was Labor Day, and... uh, Ed was, uh, had been in his previous uh, work experience a uh, cowboy, and he know, knew how to do rodeo, and he was participating in a calf roping competition in a nearby town when a friend called across from the corral and came over and found him and said, Pastor Ed, your wife is looking for you. Well, when he found his wife, she was standing by the car, and she was upset. What's up? He asked. He, she said, well, it's Ruby. She's had a massive heart attack this morning. And doctors don't think she's going to make it. Well, in something Ed wrote later about the experience, he tried to capture his emotions when he heard this news. And he said there was numbness, fear, guilt, and then more fear. Why? Because Ruby was the undisputed queen of gossip in the church. His first thought, one his wife also had, was surely her heart attack didn't have anything to do with the sermon. Because Ed knew the story that we've just read, the story about Ananias and Sapphira, the couple who dropped dead at Peter's feet as their lie was exposed. So with that story racing through his mind, he got into his car with his wife and they drove to the hospital to visit Ruby. Later that week, Ed was drinking coffee in a local donut shop when someone from the church walked up and said, hey there, Pastor Ed, what you preaching about on Sunday? Then leaned in and winked and said, I don't want to be your next victim. Ed knew how the story ended, the story of Ananias and Sapphira, that great fear seized the whole church and all who heard these events. So he was shaking, frankly, when he got up to preach the following Sunday. When he looked out, that he realized he had a very attentive audience. Everyone, preacher and congregation, were fully engaged. Now, the fortunate irony Ed would later relate, and he wrote in this article I read, was that Ruby lived to gossip again. In fact, he said she seemed to be the least affected of everyone in the church, at least spiritually, by what had happened. A lot of others in the church thought twice about passing on a juicy bit of gossip, um, although one couple did leave the church because they said of what Pastor Ed did to Ruby. But things changed for Ed and for the church, even if they didn't for Ruby. Attendance picked up. Ed, over the next few weeks, had numerous uh, important spiritual conversations with people who were previously spiritually unengaged. Two people came to faith. Giving even increased. He didn't know if that had any relationship to do with the fact that he, in a week or so, he would be preaching on James chapter 5, a chapter that condemns rich oppressors and tells them to be generous. But clearly, God had everyone's attention, including Ed's. Now, with all of that as background, let's look at this story of Ananias and Sapphira, the the story of two people who dropped down dead after telling a lie. It's a story that, frankly, has been making people feel anxious for 2,000 years. For the last few weeks, again, as I mentioned at the beginning, we've been working our way through this book in the Bible called Acts. For the most part, it's been a positive story, at least positive about the church and its young leaders. 
Sure, there have been some bad guys, the rich establishment, the uh, religious elite who've been trying to hold on to power. They've been mean to people like Peter and John. But we haven't had any negative stories about the church leaders themselves, the church people themselves. That is until now. And it makes you wonder why Luke even included this story, because it's such a downer. For the most part, things are going really well. So why would Luke want to tell us about this couple, this couple of bad apples? Well, he doesn't tell us, and we can speculate, and I will a little bit later on. But I think one of the reasons is that Luke includes this story just under the, uh, the umbrella of wanting to be honest, to include the good with the bad, to let us know that not everything was perfect in those heady days of the early Christian church. And Luke begins this section by the background that I read, the background that tells us about how the church people were treating one another. Now, just a little bit of historical perspective here. The earliest Christians came from every strata of society. There were a few who were rich, most were poor. Uh, they tended to meet in the homes of the wealthier members of the church simply because they had bigger homes and more space. All of this mixing of the classes, though, had a welcome effect. They became so connected and had such concern and care for one another that they were drawn to meet the needs of those among them who were struggling. They nursed the sick, they comforted the brokenhearted, and they shared materially with those who didn't have enough. In fact, Luke tells us that they shared everything that they had. Now, that doesn't mean that they renounced the concept of private property, at least not as a legal concept, but they did see their possessions in a new light. And so everything that they had, they believed, was from God and not for their exclusive use. It was to be shared with others. That is why from time to time, some of the wealthier among them would liquidate an asset, a building, or a piece of land, and give the proceeds to the church so that it could be distributed to the poor, to the widow, to orphans, and others. And in that way, the needs of others were provided for. As Luke puts it, there were no needy persons among them. Now, to be clear here, there's no coercion. Everyone was free to keep or to give what they had. But spontaneously, some were selling a few of the possessions that they had in order to give cash to the church leaders who could then distribute that to those who were in need. Some have called what they did here an early form of communism. That's, uh, and that's not really true. It was voluntary, not compulsory. But that said, it was and is a radical idea. And we shouldn't so quickly dismiss what they did, even if some might characterize it with that dreaded C word. Those who were doing this were making real sacrifices. They were choosing to live more simply so others could simply live. And this is a beautiful picture of the church in community, a beautiful picture of the church at its best. And then just to illustrate what it looks like, in the end of chapter 4, Luke tells a story about a man nicknamed Barnabas who owned a field, sold it, brought the proceeds, the entire proceeds from the sale of that, that asset, and gave it to the apostles. But Barnabas wasn't the only one to do this. It's indicated that others did, including a wealthy couple named Ananias and Sapphira. They had been impressed with the attention that others had received when they had sold assets, and so they decided they'll sell this piece of land and bring the money to the apostles. And so they do, in order that they might be able to help the poor. They sold this property, brought the money to the leaders. However, they kept some of the money for themselves. Now, by the way, that was not a problem. Others had done that too, but Ananias lied about it when he came and said he had given everything. So he wanted others to think he was more generous than he really was. In other words, the problem wasn't solely greed, but that he lied. Sure, some of the reason he lied was so that they could have a little, 
held back, so they didn't quite part with everything. But the bigger issue is that they wanted to be recognized, to have people pat them on the back, to have their names listed in the annual report or have a brass plaque in the church lobby with their names on it. And they wanted to appear that they gave all of this money to the poor, but really they gave it to make themselves look good. And it was also unnecessary. If they had just been honest, if they had said, we sold this piece of property and we've given here a portion of it, maybe even the majority of it, the apostles would have thanked them for their generosity, the poor would have been helped, and they would have had their nest egg. And who knows what they would have done with that? Maybe a year or two later, they might have given that away as well. But instead, they chose to lie. But Peter knew the truth, and it makes you wonder how he knew the truth. Did he know the buyer? Had he heard a rumor? We don't know. It's implied here that the Holy Spirit revealed to Peter what was going on. And so he confronted Ananias, and his words are harsh. They are not kind. They are not pastoral. He says, Satan has filled your heart. You've lied. Lied to men, lied to the Holy Spirit, and lied to God. He doesn't sugarcoat his critique at all. He points out the enormity of Ananias' sin. Now, I don't know about you, but Peter's words here make me feel uncomfortable because I have to ask some questions. I think we all do. Have I been truthful? Always. Have I tried at times to make myself look better than I really am? So if Peter's words make me and you uncomfortable, what happens next makes us all uncomfortable. You see, from our perspective, getting caught red-handed in a lie might have been punishment enough, but apparently not in this case, because as soon as the words were out of Peter's mouth, Ananias fell down stone-cold dead. So how did Ananias die? God sort of come down and strike him dead? Was it a massive heart attack? Uh, We don't know. Although we've all read books where a character receives some bad news and dies on the spot. So maybe that's what happens here. It raises all sorts of questions, though, in our mind. For one, it doesn't seem very compassionate. Shouldn't God have given him a second chance to repent, you know, instead of one strike and you're out? Also, isn't the punishment here a bit severe? Is God getting carried away by just a little lie? And maybe there's the more personal question, the more fearful question of, could this happen to me? And those are difficult questions, and I don't have all the answers. But part of the answer here is that God is serious about sin. Greed, pride, and lies are all serious to him. Frankly, they should be serious to us as well. None of us want to live in a world where greedy, proud people um, have sway and people we can't trust. And the truth is, is that we often don't take sin seriously enough. But when we stop long enough to think about it, we do get it, because that's why we're so troubled about what may be going on around us. We live in a world where people don't even bother to hide their lies. And frequently what we hear are half-truths and distortions used by some to get their way. And right now what you're probably thinking of is a politician or two, or maybe a business leader or a celebrity that you can no longer believe because they've lied so often. But it's not just other people who have this problem, is it? It's also us. We need to take a look at ourselves because maybe we're not as careful with the truth as we think we are. Maybe we've crossed a line or two in an attempt to make ourselves look good because greed, pride, and lies, those are the very same temptations that we face as well. But let's go back to the story. So Ananias is dead. Luke tells us that some of the young leaders picked up his body, took him out, and had him buried. And and then it says, three hours later, Ananias' wife, Sapphira, arrives. And when she does, Peter violates every rule of pastoral care. He doesn't take her aside and graciously let her know that her husband has died. Instead, he gets right to the point, giving her an opportunity to tell the truth. 
He says, is that the price that you and Ananias got for the land? And she says, yes, that is the price. Often today, when a public figure is caught in a scandal, their initial response is to deny everything. And that's what happens here. Because clearly, Ananias and Sapphira have agreed on their story in advance. And she sticks to the story. She sticks to the script. When she finishes, Peter confronts her. And she, too, falls down dead. And then Luke tells us, great fear seized the whole church. I'll bet it did. Um, everyone understood that Ananias and Sapphira had died as a result of divine judgment. Now, as I mentioned up front, it's not clear why Luke includes such a difficult and depressing story, but the Bible's like that. Some of the people often say to me that the biblical writers must have really cleaned things up to make everything look good and to make all the biblical characters look like they're great people. And whenever someone says that, I want to scream and say, have you ever read the Bible? Because the Bible's so full of awkward stories, stories of people acting like knuckleheads and worse. And this story is a prime example of that. I have to confess that these stories have always bothered me to some degree. And the reason, at least one of the reasons, is because I like my heroes without flaws. Although, as I've grown older, I've come to say that these stories also give me a measure of hope. Why? Because when I see, see frail, fallible people, the people that fill the pages of the Bible, I feel right at home because I can be like that as well. Sure, this story shows that, the Bible, uh, that God takes sin seriously. And yes, this story contains a warning that God is not to be trifled with. But there's also some inspiration here as well. Let me just tell you a little bit about why I believe that's true. The reason is, is that I think we all want a faith that means something. We want a God who cares about justice and righteousness. We don't want a faith where anything goes, where evil's redefined as good, where injustice triumphs over justice. That's simply not the way that we want to live or we want to see others live. We also want a church where people care deeply for one another. That's why this, this story, as depressing as it is, also inspires. You see, despite two bad apples, Ananias and Sapphira, there were perhaps dozens of other people who made a completely different decision. People who, out of care for one another, saw a need and did something about it. And I see this at City Church often. Let me just give you one example. Occasionally, about once a year or so, someone will approach me here and ask me if I can help them. They then tell me about someone they know at City Church who has a need, a need that they've become aware of, and they would like to meet that need, but they don't want to do it directly. They want to give anonymously. So sometimes people will hand me an envelope with cash or a cashier's check, and they say, I want to help, but I don't want to get any credit. And they're willing even to give up a tax deduction to do that. My lips are sealed, but I know some people here at City Church who've done this, sometimes multiple times. They've given not out of fear or guilt or duty. They've given out of generous hearts because they saw a need and knew that they could meet it. So how can we live out some of the lessons that we learn from this story? First of all, I think the first priority is to take sin seriously because we live in a world where many treat the commandments in the Bible as suggestions. When we consider good enough acceptable, even when we know that we fall short of even the standards that we have for other people. Now, even in the midst of saying, take sin seriously, there's one caution and one comfort that I need to mention. And the caution is this. That is that we are all going to mess up. The Bible's clear that we're all sinners, so we need to be realistic here. Even John, Peter's companion in the stories that we've been looking at the last few weeks, once said this in John, 1 John 1.8. He says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. What this means is that we need to learn to be humble. We need to be realistic. 
I believe with all my heart that we need to pursue what the Bible calls perfection, but we'll never quite get there. And yet we shouldn't be complacent, but understand at the same time that's the way it's going to be. Which brings us to the comfort, because if 1 John 1.8 reminds us that we are sinners, 1 John 1.9 says, but if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So the good news here is that if we repent, God will forgive us and make us whole again. The Christian story does include some bad news, that each of us is a sinner, not just that we commit sins, but that we're rebellious people to the core. When people hear this, they often think, well, maybe so-and-so else is a sinner, but I'm not that bad. And then they think of people who are worse than them, and they'll give you a list. You know, after all, Hitler, Charlie Manson, a U.S. senator or two. Or maybe it's just your neighbor across the alley who leaves his trash can right in the path that you need to take to drive into your garage. I mean, those folks are much worse than we are. But I also know that some of us have overactive consciences. It's not that we don't take sin seriously enough, but that you don't think God's grace is powerful enough. The good news of the Christian story is that no matter how bad we think we are, God's grace is way more than enough. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So take sin seriously and trust God's grace completely. Taking sin seriously means that if we ever find ourselves headed in the direction that Ananias and Sapphira were headed, we can turn and go in a different direction. So that means the, the commands that uh, Ananias and Sapphira um, violated can be reversed. Instead of pride, we can be people of compassion. Instead of greed, we can be people who give generously. And instead of lies, we can tell the truth. The problem we have with the harsh judgment that Ananias and Sapphira uh, received for their sin is a problem. And as I mentioned earlier, I don't have complete answers why that was necessary. But the truth is that there will one day for each one of us be a day of accountability. Accountability for what we have done. But the consistent message of the Bible is that forgiveness and new life is available for each one of us. But we need to respond to the invitation that is offered us through Jesus Christ while there is yet time. Let's pray. Father, as we uh, take a sobering story like this, it, uh, it reminds us that you are a God who takes sin seriously, but you are not a God who has left us in that sin, that through your gracious love for us, while we were yet sinners, Jesus Christ died for each one of us, giving us the possibility through faith to receive in a relationship with you, to be reconciled to you, and in doing so, to also be changed so that our lives might more and more reflect your glory and your goodness in our lives. Father, may we be people who take sin seriously. And may we also follow the example of these earliest Christians who cared enough about one another that they were willing to set aside their own opportunity and even uh, right to hold on to property, to do so in a way that was generous and loving and caring. We pray this in Jesus' name.